Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn from a much warmer Wiltshire than it was last week. Hello, it's Richard Heller from quite a sunny south-east London. Now, Richard, we've got a magnificent guest today, heartwarming, ideal for this time of year, and on a day which is so bleak and awful for English cricket, to be cheered up by Henry Blofeld from Menorca. Good morning, Henry. My dear old thing, you know, the awful thing about the cricket is you never win in Australia if you don't have a good pair of opening batsmen. Ah, that is your big... I've got other theories about why it all went disastrously wrong. Um, If you're um, always 11 for three, it's not a place from which you win the Ashes. That's a very good point, and I'm sure that's borne out statistically, because um, when we've had great opening pairs, and I remember when... Boycott and Edrich were our opening pair. We um we won that series. Luckhurst. Strauss and Cook. Strauss and Cook, yep. Hobbs mm. Hobbs and Zatler. Well, very simple formula. Pick the openers and let the the other nine take care of themselves. If you've got the openers to pick. Ah, well, that's our problem. We keep we can't even find one reliable one, can we, since, since Alistair <laughs> Cook disappeared. Mm. Now there are two reasons why we've invited Henry back for a second innings. Uh, the first is that he's got a, a new project, an, an author, autobiographical documentary film, which is absolutely riveting, in which Henry uh, charts the history of his very rich and fascinating and obviously hugely enjoyable life, not just for him personally, but also for everybody who's followed him. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that at the at the end of the podcast, but I can't recommend it. I really cannot recommend it too highly. And also, extraordinarily prolific in, in his 80s, he's produced a book, Ten to Win and The Last Man In, and that's going to provide the, the bulk of our conversation. It is. It's a very good book, um, Henry. The very simple premise, it's your personal selection of um, great finishers in cricket, most of them in test cricket, uh, a lot of them that you've seen personally, some that you haven't seen, I think. So perhaps starting with the first one, 1882, when Spofforth bowled Australia to victory um, by seven runs. Yes, I arrived late that day. It was... <laughs> <laughs> um, I, they, I, the early ones absolutely fascinated me. And then the later ones, as you say, were I was present and therefore one was able to bring something personal into it. Um, I, I felt Test cricket was awfully important because I think I hope we all believe that two innings cricket really is the way to go. And uh, when you get a Test match over five days that fluctuates one way and the other, and you get down to the last half an hour and all four results are possible, I don't think there's anything else in sport to compete with that. And we live in an age, don't we, when Test cricket is being pilloried and pushed to the side. I mean, we've had the hundred this year, the hundred. I, I thought it was going to be hopeless, but in fact, it was a terrific success in its way. But Test cricket has been pushed further and further to the margins, April and September. And if anyone Test cricket wants to go back to the counties in and from June, July, and August to play a couple of games there and get a few runs, if he's out of form, well, there are there are no twinning matches in which he can play. So I mean, Test cricket is being elbowed out all the time, and I just feel that it needs all the support it can get because I personally firmly believe it's the best form of the game. 
Here, here. It's great sorrow, isn't it, that so many people actually don't experience timed cricket matches at all. I've I've met cricketers in their sixties who've never played a timed game. You know, below let's say below, obviously below the top level. You know, club cricket downwards. So many matches are. Um, you know, are limited overs, and um, many of them are dead um, very early on. The word declaration no longer exists, does it, at that level, at that level no. says. Mm. And you've picked several matches that, in your selection where the great finish is procured by a, an inspired declaration, an art that, um, as you say, seems to be vanishing. Well, you see, now people only declare in test matches when they've made the game absolutely safe for themselves. Whereas, I mean, the, the idea of a declaration is to give yourself the best chance of victory. And in so doing, perhaps to give the other side a bit of a chance, which will lead to their self-destruction. And this, this aspect of it seems to have disappeared completely. I mean, test captains regularly declare when the opposition have got not a hope in hell of, of scoring the mountain of runs in front of them. And, and therefore they're never going to, as it were, go headlong to their own destruction because there's no need for that because they know they're never going to win. All they've got to do is play out time, and which rather negates the whole sort of workings, if you like it, of a declaration, or the whole purpose of a declaration. Can I come on to your account of Fowler's match? Uh, and and the, what I'd like to note is the literary skill with which you tell the story. So you don't give just a sort of um, a wisdom like, it has its time and place account of the game, but you see it through... Two people based at a gentleman's club in the West End. <laughs> Can we tell, shall we tell this was that Paolo's match was an extraordinary game of cricket played at Lords in 1910, eaten against Harrow. And Harrow had to get, I think, 55 to win in the final innings. And uh, Fowler, Arsenal Fowler, who was the Eton captain, took eight for, was it eight for 23? I think it was. And, um, and and Eaton won by, by 10 runs or eight runs or nine runs. I can't remember the exact figure, but it was the most, most exciting game. And there was this splendid chap who was an, an old Etonian and couldn't bear watching his side go to defeat, who uh, went, went to White's to pick up his suitcase because he was uh, going away for the weekend. And he thought, well, I've got a bit of time before the train. So he went into the barbers. They have a resident barber at White's and had his hair cut. And when he was halfway through, um, a peer of the realm poked his head round the corner and said, uh, Harrow 21 for four. Uh, nothing much happened. But then a few moments later, he said, he updated and said that 21 for six. Whereupon the chap leapt out of the chair with his hair half cut and they hailed a taxi and they said to the taxi, if we do it under 15 minutes, it'll be double fare. And they put a stopwatch on him and he, and he did it by 21 seconds. So they gave him double fare. And then he, they ran into the pavilion and one of them skewered a rather plump older Robin who was leaving and hit him in the, in the waistcoat and he's umbrella ricocheted over, over the railings um, and uh, but the chap just ignored the fallen body, jumped over it, <laughs> ran upstairs and got it got to the top deck just as the eighth arrow wicket fell. That's the quote, uh, what the um, what the contemporary account of this collision. The impact was terrific and the unlucky individual doubling up sank like a wounded buffalo onto his <laughs> knees without, so far as I recollect, uttering a sound. 
I sprang over the body without offering an apology and so on. <laughs> it's good stuff, isn't it? And then what I loved too was he then summoned the attendant to go and look after his umbrella. <laughs> <laughs> not look after the not look after the fallen member, but oh, rescue no. his umbrella. Oh, no. That's right. It reminds yeah. me of the occasion when when at a Downing Street dinner in the eighties. A waitress, young waitress, rather overawed, poured the soup all over Geoffrey Howe's lap. Mrs. Thatcher leapt up and consoled the waitress. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lovely. Yes. She's very considerate to the number 10 staff. I'm not all, I don't think that was very much in character. She was actually worshipped by the staff, not necessarily by her cabinet ministers, but certainly by, uh, by, her, by her staff. Eaton and Harrow, um, at the time of Fowler's match, and indeed when you played in two Eaton and Harrow matches at Lord's, was a really big event at Lord's, wasn't it? In the first one I played in, in 1955, I think on I think we had we had certainly ten thousand people in the ground, and I'm not certain it wasn't a few more actually. Mm. And uh, I mean, it really was still. You know, we had um, in front of the old tavern, you had the um, those lovely. Um, carriages on on the outfield in which um, one or two family well, I think they were on the outfield or were they just behind I think they were on the outfield in fact and then you always had a tremendous gathering in the free seats uh, led on one side by Brian Johnston who shouted and barracked at the Aerobians it was, I mean, it was all good clean fun and it, I, it was all wasn't it an official part an official fixture in the London season in those days I mean ladies arrived all dressed to kill and the most wonderful hats and the chaps all wore morning dress you know and and top hats and it was it was a great occasion and you may say the cricket the cricket was very much secondary to it but in a funny way it wasn't because everyone there desperately wanted one side or the other to win so that kept the cricket very much in focus Going back to Fowler's match, there were two um, future cabinet ministers, weren't mm. they, in the in the beaten side? Um, Walter Moulton. Mm. And there was also Field Marshal Lord Alexander was there. Mm. Absolutely, yep. And also, if you look back at this 1910 at Fowler's match, and you know what's coming, and all these young men in their sort of 16, 17, 18, you know where they'll be in five years ahead. Well, I know. I think a lot of them were killed, and obviously a lot of... I think I counted, I think it was eight would die in the Western Front. Well, I mean, I put rather a gloomiest thing in this. I remember when I was at school there, the housemaster Tom Catley, who became rather a friend, it was an old man, and he told me one day of how awful it was. He had a house all through the First War, saying goodbye at the end of, end of the half to Barris, the boys as they left, knowing full well that within eight, eight weeks or 10 weeks, they would be dead. And I don't think he, well, he didn't ever get over it. And I don't wonder. I mean, he must have been simply, simply desperate uh, to live with that all happening around you, wasn't it? Yes. And so there's that very heavy, um, heavy sense of kind of rather perfect world or a rather beautiful world about to be utterly destroyed. Well, it was, wasn't it? I mean, the, and in, uh, a beautiful world, which caused embrace the golden age of cricket, didn't it? I do like uh, the postscript you have to this account of the match that a, a lady friend of Fowler's mum in Ireland wrote to congratulate her. Didn't know where she was, so she wrote Fowler's mother, London, and it got delivered to her. <laughs> <laughs> lovely, isn't it? I know, <laughs> uh, lovely.
But I mean, I think, and the other two innings match I included, you know, which isn't a test match, was an extraordinary game at the Saffrons at Eastbourne in uh, 1921, when Archie McLaren, who was then 50, and of course had captained England after, at the turn of the century and afterwards for a time, had said he could get an 11 that would beat Warwick Armstrong's side, which had just swept through the test series, winning 3 nothing, and had lost no match in, on the tour. And he gathered a side of young and old, none of whom played, in fact, in the Test Series. And they played at Eastbourne because they, they, they committed our welcomed the chance to, for McLaren to try and prove it. And indeed, they, they were bowled out, I think, for 43 on the first morning <laughs> before lunch, but went on to win by um, uh, 30-some-odd runs. And it was the most extraordinary game and um, my sort of hero, he became a hero writing this book, Aubrey Faulkner, who mm -hmm. played for South Africa, made 153, having not played a serious innings since uh, 1912 in the, that famous triangular tournament in England between England, South Africa and Australia. And he came in. And the extraordinary thing about Aubrey Faulkner was he hadn't uh, played cricket, as I say, and as he went on batting, he audibly coached himself, which made the Australians <laughs> furious. But he obviously did a pretty good job, didn't he? And uh, but the interesting thing was that the Australians were trying because the whole the side was on an enormous win bonus if they didn't win, didn't lose a match during the tour. So there was no question of them not trying. They played thirty-eight matches on that tour, which seems a lot. And it was, was do you know if this one was added to it, Henry? Because as a result of McLaren's sort of boast uh, or someone to kind of rose? I think what, what, my, my feeling what happened was that there was a, a festival match against the Australians was arranged for Eastbourne and they then the side had not, it was then later chosen and, and the Eastbourne committee went for Archie McLaren. Oh. I, because you see, they went on up to Scarborough after that and played oh. a game there and which they also lost, funnily enough. Oh. And I think a, a game at Scarborough would have been very much on the fixture list from the start. Yes. So it, it, it sort of indicates to me that a game was planned at, at Eastbourne, although the opposition may not have been. Indeed. I was fascinated by your sort of sidelight on, on Archie McLaren. He was a very rather equivocal figure, wasn't he? Um, yes, he was. And of course, you see, what made that match so famous was that the man who really worshipped Archie McLaren was Neville Cardis. And Neville Carter could, never thought that McLaren could do no wrong, although McLaren sailed very close to the wind and, and sometimes, I think, rather over it. Um, and anyway, Middlesex were playing Surrey at that time, a very important championship fixture at Lords. But Carter's managed to persuade the editor of The Guardian, would it have been C.P. Scott then, the editing manager? I can't remember. Yes, he still was, yep. Mm. He got into a train and went down to Eastbourne. And when um, McLaren's 11 was bowled out for 43 on the first day, he managed to resist quite strong efforts to get him to go up to Lords and watch the rest of that match. <laughs> and, and because he was there and wrote about it, wrote a chapter in, about the game in one of his books, it became immortalised. Well, he was just starting out, actually, I think, at The Guardian in the early 20s. He, he was quite brave been, of him. He'd been, been there for a while, but certainly he, he would have had to work very hard to get uh, permission to go to Eastbourne instead of the, the, the championship. And then match. resist efforts from a powerful yes. sports editor. I 
mean, knowing how newspapers, you, are you, as you know, Henry, yeah. from your yeah. days as a as a sports reporter, a cricket reporter. Well, yes. I mean, the, the, the time one spent trying to manipulate one's sports editor, so that he's central to rather an agreeable venue like Bath or Taunton or <laughs> wherever, as opposed to Leighton to watch Essex. You know, a certain amount of arm twisting went on. But I thought, I, one thing I slightly contradict you on, uh, Peter, I thought, I rather agreed with Richard, I thought uh, Neville Cardus was a bit earlier. But on the other hand, it was very soon after the first war, wasn't it? So maybe you're right. I think we'll have to refer to Duncan Hamilton's glorious, wonderful biography of, of Cardus, which was published a year or two ago. Yes, I have it. I have it at home in Norfolk. Mm. It's, it's a lovely book, isn't it? Yep. And also, the, didn't the Australian Gideon Hay write a book about Cardus too? That I don't know. I have I to say, I learned, so much. I learned so much from Hamilton's book about Cardus's early early struggles. And you also need to read Cardus's own autobiography. It's such a rich book, particularly the first half. Uh, that those two loves of his life, uh, opera and cricket, and how he kind of came up from absolutely nowhere. Did you ever have any dealings with him, Henry? Yes, I, he once gave me, uh, gave me dinner at the Garrick, the Garrick Club. Mm. And um, I, I don't remember a great deal about it. There were other people there as well. He was absolutely charming and um, was very complimentary. I mean, complimentary. I mean, he not really, but he was. I mean, he made a great effort to be nice. And um, he, he was, it, it was, I suppose one, one, one hung on every word. I think one realized after a time that most of it was mythology. Because I think he, he made up so much of, of uh, what he wrote, didn't he? <laughs> I mean, all those lovely, lovely things and the conversations between the, the Yorkshire cricketers and Lancashire cricketers <laughs> probably never existed. And when accused of this, he said, no, he said, they may not have said it, but they ought to have said it. <laughs> <laughs> your friend, your great friend, the late John Woodcock, who we all miss so much, he, he told me that he, he went to, on one of those big long journeys to Australia, which was still made by boat in those days. He was sort of adopted by Cardus as a kind of protege, which meant he had to have dinner à deux with Cardus every night of the <laughs> trip. And it, the first two or three dinners were quite fun and wonderful, but after the sort of 30 nights, as you were docking at Sydney, it was got a bit much. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I always remember Wooders, dear Wooders, telling me um, the first tour he went on, 50-51, Freddie Brown's tour, Bo Vincent was, uh, was the Times cricket correspondent. And he'd never been on a tour before and got very gingerly onto the, onto the ship at Tilbury. And when they were going, sort of, they, they turned right by Dover and sort of went into the channel. And Bo Vincent came up to Wooders at one point and saying, does this ship stop at Plymouth? <laughs> said, no, I don't think it does. Why? He said, because I want to get off. <laughs> and he had a miserable tour. And... Um, I think in the end he came home, and I, I'm not certain that Raymond, uh, that Crusoe Robertson Glasgow didn't uh, uh, take over for the Times in the, in the middle of that tour. Henry, I'd like to skip forward just a few more, a few years after that. I was very glad that you um, included Frank Tyson's great performance uh, in 1954, 55 at Melbourne in your collection. Um, Frank, um, it was actually I think that match was Sydney, wasn't it? Uh, I've written, I've written, I've written Richard, you've got a fact I think wrong. The, second, the second test it was, 
yeah. which we had to win, having lost the first by an innings at Brisbane after. Henry, look, but can, mind yourself, you're talking to somebody who came second in Mastermind. Well, in 1995. Uh, this may be why I came second. <laughs> and you're absolutely right, Henry. Henry is right. Oh, I'm wrong. I've, it's right in front of me. Sydney Cricket Ground. I don't know why I wrote Melbourne. Yep. So, Henry, you need to know something. One of the great close finishes of all time, which would have, if it was a cricket match, would have made it into your book. Richard was pipped by one point in the Mastermind final by a vicar in Oxford. He had help from above. He had help from above. You can see. Yes, you can. You can can see it very clearly in the replay, Henry. He 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 had a very bad run of answers and and passes, and um, and you can see it in the replay. He looks up, um, you know, for help, and help came to him. He suddenly um, he suddenly started answering again, um, fluently. So. uh, Yes, so I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you said help. Mm. You were looking down for help, Will. I don't know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I certainly didn't get any anyway. I, my special subject was Gary Sobers, and I fluffed two questions oh. on, on the great man. Um, so uh, the vicar edged me. Um, what, what, do you remember what question you fluffed? Yeah, I remember. I, I was too clever. I remember one of them was um, which... Other sport did um, Gary Sobers achieve international honours? I would have said golf. Well, he might well have done, um, but he uh, it was actually soccer. He was a goalkeeper for Barbados. So, was he? Uh, yes, uh, at, uh, as a teenager, and uh, that got away from me. Uh, another one got away from me, and that was that was that was the end of it. Um, but I was so going back to Frank Tyson at Sydney, not Melbourne. Yeah. Um, Frank Tyson was a great writer, wasn't he? I mean, he's, he's somebody I'd next to Don Bradman. He's probably the somebody I'd most like to have met. I wondered if you'd ever met him, Henry. Oh yes, I I I got to know Frank quite well. Mm. And Frank was was a dear dear man, and lived in Australia, um, like Harold Larwood, of course, mm. another Ashes winning bowler in Australia who went to live there. And Frank uh, was. Um, he was. He had one great thing in common with Bill Edridge, if you remember, in that he, if you, if he drank half a glass of wine, it, it, it rather sort of, uh, uh, it finished him. I mean, he had a very, very little resistance to it. I remember one party in uh, Perth in about nineteen. Uh, Oh, when was it? In the in the late seventies, I should think. And uh, we, Peter Loder, another England fast bowler who migrated to Australia, uh, lived in Perth, and he had a party one evening. We all went along, and it was cold, and I hadn't got, wasn't wearing a jersey. I just had an open neck shirt, and, I, and Peter said, "Look, I tell you what, Blurs, I'll lend you a jersey." He went into his house and came out with a sleeveless England sweater with mm. the uh, the lounge in, in front of it. So I put it on. And when Tyson, who was well away by that stage, saw me, he was absolutely furious. <laughs> and I was standing by the swimming pool and he came charging at me and without breaking wind, wind and he missed me by about two yards and went straight into the pool. <laughs> and it, it was terribly funny. <laughs> but he was, I mean, I remember the, the other great thing about, I mean, story about Tyson, I think, was, was Johnny Woodcock. In Australia, being given a lift back from Adelaide by Don Bradman, where, where the Don lived. And in the car, Johnny said to him, he said, Don, who was the quickest you ever saw? And he answered immediately, Tyson. There was never, although he never faced him, he said he was undoubtedly 
uh, the quickest um, he'd ever seen, which was interesting. And, and then Arthur Morris made the marvelous comment and uh, made the comparison. He said that it was Statham, Brown Statham opened the bowling with Frank Tyson on that tour uh, because uh, Fred Truman was still paying the penalty of being a naughty boy in the West Indies in 53-4 when Len Hutton didn't really look after him. On, that was Fred's first tour. And uh, Brian Statham partnered Tyson and Arthur Morris said the difference in, in pace between um, Tyson and Statham is the difference in pace between Statham and Bailey. Good grief, yeah. Which That's... gives you a good idea, mm. gives you a good idea, Trevor Bailey was, well, Trevor Bailey was an energetic fast medium, wasn't he? Yes. Mm. Mentioning Bradman, you have a slight, have a slight go at Bradman in your book. I mean, it's very. I, by the way, I will say I think it's a wonderful book. Your book It's full of things which made me reflect, pause. I learnt so much. There is a literary artistry. You're a much better writer, Henry, than I think some people give you credit for. Uh, I've read a lot of your books, and they're always really to the point, relevant. Tell a great story, and I think you're, and perhaps because of your, you do cultivate a certain image of yourself. You get underrated for the seriousness of your work. I think your point about, you know, Bradman, is there was something inevitable prosaic about it, innings by Bradman, whereas every stroke that Trumper played was a joint product of genius and imagination. Bradman's story was told mainly by the quantity of his runs, Trumper's by the natural quality of his stroke play. That's not just very fine writing, but it's a really cute observation, challenging in some ways, our idea that, you know, that, that Brabham was sans pareil. Well, I mean, I think one of the reasons that this is so, you see these wonderful photographs of, of Trump advancing down the pitch and driving that immortal photograph, but you never see photographs of Don Bradman playing wonderful strokes. You never see a late cut or a cover drive of Don Bradman held up as an object that should be uh, situ situated in, in, the, in a museum. Uh, all you really read about Bradman and, and collect in your mind is the quantity of runs he scored. And, and I think this is a reflection of, of, of a comparison of the two. I mean, I think Ranji Sinji is another, isn't he? I mean, Ranji was one of, uh, was perhaps my favorite cricketer of all. And I've just been very, very, very lucky and been given uh, two silver tankards, which Ranji had in Nabanaga and was given to a, a friend of his when Ranji died in the mid thirties. And this friend of his left it, left it the, the, all these uh, tankards, six of them, uh, to his uh, nephew who realized I like Ranji. I'd never met the nephew, but he left me two of them when he died. And they were wonderful things to have with Ranji's crest on them. Bradman was a bit like the efficient Baxter, wasn't he? Um, yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And I mean, the fact that Bradman and Keith Miller fell out, I mean, Keith Miller I knew very well and loved, but the fact that Bradman simply couldn't stomach him at any price uh, tells you a lot, I think. That's very, very... The efficient Baxter, for those who don't know Woodhouse, and that's unforgivable, perhaps you don't deserve to know this fact, was the private confidential secretary to Lord, Lord Emsworth. Lord Emsworth, yes. yes. And you know who his successor was? Well, his successor, Smith, one of the books it? is Smith. Yeah. Um, yes, it was, it was Smith. He yes. Smith. Smith's yeah, first job. Yes. I yes. have to say, um, lingering a while on Smith, um, I mean, there is a faint air of Smith in the city, which is, by the way, 
Woodhouse's masterpiece in my Isn't it? very early days. And it spent half the time is spent, um, you know, um, kind of sitting at some desk, but being ordered about by some most, some evil sort of technician in a, in a banking parlour. Mr. Bickersdorf. Mr. Bickersdorf, who, who walked behind the bowler's arm. You remember? <laughs> yes, he when did. Jack, he did. When, Jack, when Mike had 98, he walked behind the bowler's arm. He did. And then, so, but then, of course, they... They relinquish Mike and Smith vanish off to uh, cricket matches in a moment of relief, and of course that reflects not just your life when you bumped off Climate Benson Henry and went off to report um, for the Daily Telegraph or whatever it was, <laughs> but it also reflects a lovely story here. One of the matches, P.G. Woodhouse, you managed to identify him in the crowd when he's a young banker and ought to be in his parlour. Well, that was in 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 the what the match at the Oval when Gilbert Jessup made that hundred and four that he's only Test hundred, which was one of the probably best known Test hundreds that will ever be. And you know there were two Tests in a row. Australia won at Old Trafford by which year? Well, we must say which year this is. It's nineteen oh two. Nineteen oh two. Yeah. And Australia won at Old Trafford when Fred Tate played his only Test match, Morris Tate's father which he should never have been selected for. And that was only because Lord Hawke, who was uh, chairman of selectors, had a, a great row with McLaren, who was England captain. And Fred Tate played, dropped a catch, and uh, was pulled for four in the final innings. And Australia won by, I can't remember, was it three runs? Three four runs. runs, yeah. And then, in, then at the Oval, uh, in the next Test match, uh, it was when Rhodes and Hurst... Uh, didn't, as as is always said, get them in singles, but they got 15 runs for the last wicket, and England won by one wicket. It was an astonishing game, uh, which was brought to life by that innings of 104 by Gilbert Jessup. And watched by PG. PG and so, watched in, also by Ben Travers, the playwright. Yes. Um, and did you ever meet him, Henry? Yes, I did. He came into the commentary box and, mm. and, and did... A view from the boundary in my early days with Test oh, nice. Match, I wasn't involved, but I was listening there with while Jonas talked to him, and he was—it was wonderful, and he was tremendously with it, and and you could see him reliving that great last day um, as he talked. It was—it was a wonderful half an hour. You quote Ben Travers saying, 78 years later, I felt a bit of a hero at having actually been there on Jessup's day. I still do." Yeah, he wrote a West End hit when he was ninety or ninety or more than ninety. Great encouragement to all of uh, some of us. Well, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, there's, there's more to come. There's more to come. Yeah. Um, the uh, one of the themes uh, in your book, running all the way through it, Henry, is and I was just thinking of it with Fred Tate. Is some of your great your great finishes? They're always on a very fine margin, aren't they? There are some characters who are very cool at the end of a great uh, in a great finish. Frank Worrell figures twice in uh, two of your great finishes. Uh, somebody was cool and kept his head. Um, uh, and obviously, you know, more recently, Ben Stokes uh, at Headingley. Um, but some of your great finishes are shaped by, well, you know, moments of incompetence. Poor old Fred Fred Tate dropping his catch, and um, you know, years later, um, Nathan Lyon missing his run out. Well, this is right, isn't it? Mm. Don't you think in any close finish, when you really look back on it, you find the the dreadful moment when someone would hang their head in shame that they gave away uh, the all-important single or 
dropped the catch or or did something that um, had a, a very significant <laughs> um, effect on the result. But you know, the the most the the best game of cricket I ever watched. Funnily enough, it's in that book, and you haven't mentioned. Well, we haven't got that perhaps yet to the modern, modern cricket. Was a draw. It was the draw. Though in the fifth test match at um, Georgetown in mm. 1968, when for six days, mm. Georgetown, because the series had not been decided, an extra day was added on. And from the very first ball, it was an astonishing match. And England survived it with their last pair of Alan Knott playing very early in his career. He just replaced Jim Parks in the middle of that series. Darrow Jim Parks, who was 90 the other day, by the way. And um, and also Jeff Jones, the father of Simon Jones, who well left arm over for uh, Glamorgan mm. and England and mm. was scuppered by tennis elbow, poor chap. But he only, he was one of those number 11s who only took a bat out with him when he went to the crease because someone told him he should. <laughs> and, but he managed miraculously to survive the last over by Lance Gibbs. And we got the draw, which we needed to win the series. And the lovely story, but before the last over was bowled, Alan Norton, who was at the non-striker's end, and Jeff Jones met in mid-pitch, had a lengthy conversation. I think to make it all, there was only one more over, only time for one more over. And when I asked Notty in the aeroplane the next day what they talked about, he didn't talk to about. He said, we sang the first two verses of Land of My Fathers. <laughs> In, in English or Welsh? In English or Welsh? Yes. Well, I, I didn't ask that. I, I, I only imagine not his Welsh would, would not have been up to it. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you finished that one off. When, when Jones somehow kept the last ball out, the crowd leapt over the fencing and invaded the field. Ah, uh, yes. It was just about the perfect test match, you call it, Henry. Yes, I remember so well. Um, I was what you might call fagging for Jim Swanton in that match. Oh, I was, um, I I was doing the Telegraph matches on the tour, which he wasn't um, reporting on himself. And when during the Test matches, I sat alongside him. And when he went off to the committee room, I had to watch the cricket and give him notes and things like that. And um, <laughs> that, that was the only time I have ever actually worked for the great man. And uh, we never quite saw eye to eye about a number of things. And um, but he, he was, he, he was a, we had a splendid situation where um, during that tour, I, uh, after the first test in Trinidad, we were flying early the next morning to uh, Jamaica. We were going up to Montego Bay to play a, one, a, 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 no, a minor game against Jamaica Colts there. And I went out to a nightclub the night before and got to the airport a, a, too late for, um, for the aeroplane. But the aeroplane, in fact, was delayed. I got onto it and I missed the lift which Swanson had promised to give me. And he refused to talk to me for three weeks. But in the game I was doing at uh, Montego Bay, the, Daily, the Sunday Telegraph had just come into existence. And I was reporting that match. Swanson should have been doing it. But I was not only reporting it in his place, my piece was going to be going to be printed under the name of E.W. Swanson. Hmm. And I had great fun thinking of all the words of Swanson's that I could put in. And I got notwithstanding in twice. <laughs> what were the other um, uh, mo what were the other words of Swanson's? Can you remember which you were? 
The other well, we, we had a great row, and I remember at, Mont- at um, in Sabina Park because the press box, the old press box, was very, very difficult and narrow. And uh, Swanton had a seat of luxury at the far end and in, in 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 the front row, and I was a I was sort of outside left in the, in the back row and just by the door. And when the door was open, all the papers blew everywhere where I was. Uh, but Swanson at the other end of the box wanted the door open for the for the air, <laughs> and so we had a constant shouting match about that. And I think probably uh, after that, our, our our friendship was was so to speak limited slightly. I mean, you know, uh, he always had a slightly guarded relationship. <laughs> Although I did play quite a lot of cricket for his Arabs society. Uh, founded in the 30s, which was, it was the most enjoyable cricket I played. And indeed, I went on an Arab tour to uh, Barbados. And and so, um, Swanson wasn't all bad. In fact, a lot of him was very good and he was a terrific friend of the game. But he was known by many of his friends as Pomponius Ego and (laughs) not really without reason. Can I come on to another match which uh, Swanson would have reported? And I rather... It's the one of your beautiful essays, which I, I slightly took a, a issue with, because I think you miss a point. And this is the uh, the the uh, first Test match between, between England and West Indies in 1957, where you have this enormous partnership between yeah. May and Cowdery, and you and it's always hailed, and you do too, as a sort of great heroic moment. For me, it's a, that partnership is one of the darkest moments in modern cricket, test cricket history because you had this glorious bowler, Ramadin, magical, artistic, and you had these two, I mean, obviously May is one of the, the probably the best post-war test batsmen, but you had two major conventional English batsmen and using what, these using their pads, they neutralised Ramadin by sticking their leg down the wicket and relying on a very unimaginative test umpires Um uh, and sort of very negative play to basically squash and eliminate inventive spin bowling from Test cricket until the re-emergence of Warren 35 years later. Is there not a sort of faint parallel, which is in my mind, I take your point, but a faint parallel between Jardine, Larwood and Bradman in 1932-3 in Bondiline? Go on. Well, I mean, there is. This was something that was equally unethical oh, yeah, at the yeah. time, designed to destroy Bradman. And Cowdery and May designed this to destroy Ramadin. And I can see a, a sort of a parallel here. I like it, but I'm very intelligent. Because in, again, uh, that wonderful book Duncan Hamilton describes on his book on the body line is that dinner between, between Jardine and, and Larwood where they plotted it all before the tour. And yeah, so it's both equally unethical. It's interesting, very interesting parallel. Well, I, I think you make a very good point, though. I, I think I did mention, I probably didn't underline it, which I should have done, and, and how right of you to point it out. But I think I did mention the, 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 uh, something about the bad play, didn't I? Oh, you did, did mention it. It went did. on. You did. In spite of change in the laws of cricket. I mean, the, the batsmen were not allowed to do that anymore outside the off-stump, as as, weren't they, as a, as a direct result of that immense partnership. Um, oh, there's some, some of the figures that you quote in there are absolutely staggering, Henry, about that match. The West Indies, in that long partnership, bowled 258 overs in the innings. Amazing. Ramadan had to bowl 98 of them. I know. Extra- absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? Mm. And when you when you think about 
uh, overrates today and what bowlers can do if they really have, if they think they've got a chance of winning. Uh, you know, it, it, it's extraordinary. I mean, the overrate is one is the one of the great besetting sins of the modern game, don't you think? I couldn't agree more. Just another statistic I looked up quite recently for other purposes. When Ramadan and Valentine were operating together and when they were on top in the Lord's Test of 1950, which West Indies won, um, they they averaged 28 overs an hour together. Yep. Mm. Um, uh, they bowled a maiden, you know, they bowled maiden after maiden. Um, Ram- well, of Val- course, that, that helped because mm. the, the, there wasn't any, the fielders weren't chasing the ball to the boundaries. So, I mean, this, if you bowl maiden over after maiden over. I remember watching in India, the first tour I ever did in 63 4 at, I think it was Bangalore. I may be wrong on that. I think it was the first test when Bapu Nadkani who left arm spinner who pushed it through, bowled, achieved the world record for consecutive maiden overs. And I can't remember whether it was just into the 20s. It was something extraordinary. And as I remember then we got up to an extraordinary number of overs in the hour mm. uh, because no runs were being scored. And therefore the fielders, you know, everything happened so quickly. We have mentioned this on the programme before, but I think it's worth retelling. Richard met Nancarney and discussed at some length I'm, that, that yes, it's very He was very proud of his record. I met him 40 years later at a reception. He's terribly proud of his record, um, but he was uh, still, 40 years on, very angry that it was ended by a misfield. <laughs> 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 and he said, I could have bowled another 20 maiden overs if they'd asked me. Uh, it, was, it was blotted by a misfield at mid-off. Yeah. You know, you know what happened after that, the extraordinary thing at the end of that tour, there was a, a, a side which Jim Swanton had something to do with, which uh, a Commonwealth side, which came over to India. And one of the players, batsmen, was Seymour Nurse, who in an unofficial test match, I think it was at Eden, Eden, Eden Gardens in Calcutta, came down, really got after Nat Carney. And um, it came down the wicket and straight drove him with such speed that he tried to stop it and it broke his arm. <laughs> yes. Which was a sort, of, a sort of footnote. I mean, I think the England batsmen were... I remember Bolas, who had played first... Uh, Brian Bolas, Nottingham, Yorkshire, Nottinghamshire, who had played first of all against the West Indies in 63. And when he hit the ball, he hit West Hall for about four fours in the first over. Then he went to India and, and someone had a word in his ear and told him that the way to keep your test place was to survive. And he went through India, not picking his bat out of the block hole and very <laughs> seldom hitting the ball off the square. And I think he was one of the uh, main contributors to Nat Carney's record. Was that the tour, Henry, where you very nearly got a test match cap? Well, it was, but that was nothing to do with my ability as a cricketer. It was only the, because of the numerical necessity of having 11 men in the side. Oh. Because uh, Dele Belly had, had, had affected everyone. They'd rather unwisely gone out to dinner eating prawns, uh, which in 1964 in Bombay was, 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 was a very hazardous pursuit. It's not entirely unhazardous now, but it's nothing like as bad as it was. And uh, the night before the match, David Clark, the manager, called me outside after a press conference said, look, it's you or me, but we're the last two to play first-class <laughs> cricket. He said, try and get to bed before... First of all, he said, you're 20 years younger than me. Try and get to bed before midnight. And I did. And uh, the next day, Mickey Stewart heard the news. He was the vice-captain and was in hospital. And uh, they thought he had dysentery, actually. And he came... A, a, a grey face came round to the pavilion 
and obviously he played. And interestingly, I met Mike Smith, MJK, who was captain about a year and a half ago uh, at a, a theatre I was doing, no, two years ago in Leamington, where he lives. And he was saying that the re reason he didn't want me uh, really to, to, to play, and he preferred Stuart, was he knew Stuart would go off after a, a short time and go back to bed. But he then knew that he could get one of the Indian fielders who weren't playing in the test match, an Indian, to come on as 12th man. Whereas he said, if I had you as 12th man, unfit and everything else, he said, it would have been hopeless. But he said, I had a perfectly good fielder who was a fit test cricketer, uh, who was able to do duty as 12th man, which made sense, didn't it? It makes sense, but nevertheless, the romance of having you on for one test match, Henry, would have been lovely. <laughs> yes. Wouldn't it be lovely? I'd love to have had that MCC touring sweater they all wore. <laughs> I, I think I'd accepted it. I'd never, I'd never have taken it off. Maybe it wouldn't, and, uh, and uh, Frank Tyson wouldn't have tried to push you into the pool, would he? Well, I, if I... <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point, Richard, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if he'd earned it, yes. Yeah. Mm. I have included four one-day matches in this book because uh, that World Cup final at Lords in 2019 when uh, Stokes and all the rest of it bore overthrows because no game of cricket will ever have that ending again. It had to be there. And the other one, which was remarkable too, was when the English ladies beat the Indian ladies a year or two beforehand in their World Cup final at Lords. And, and Anya Shrubsoul took all those wickets in her last two or three overs. I, I think that was an amazing game. And it does just show how one day cricket and the, the um, particularly the 100, what it's done for ladies cricket, which has come on so enormously, hasn't it, in recent years. I was also very glad to see uh, that you included um, the great Irish uh, victory. Oh, yes. Um, in Bangalore. I watched that every ball of it. And, it's quite a, it, and I was in Pakistan in an ambulance centre. Channel 4 had um, sent me to Karachi. It was a very clever idea that you to make a film about the enormous violence in Karachi. And the idea was that uh, I'd go to an ambulance centre, an ED ambulance centre, and every time there was a shooting, which happens all the time in Karachi, you, the ambulance would rush off and I'd jump in the back of it and I'd get to the, me and the cameraman would get to the, uh, the scene of the crime very fast. Unfortunately, or, <laughs> there was a, suddenly a ceasefire between the two biggest gangs. And so there was very little action. And I was just sat in this ambulance centre. And then there, there, on live on TV, I was able to watch England versus Ireland and that incredible innings by Kevin O'Brien. And what was so lovely was, obviously, the Pakistanis being in green, they were cheering on all the people at the ambulance centre Watching every ball, Kevin O'Brien, that glorious innings in which he achieved this completely impossible result, which you described so well. And so was I by the end. We were just, it was the most enrapturing performance. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And, and I mean, this is the great joy of cricket. OK, one day cricket. I think one day cricket. Uh, produces, of course, it does hugely exciting finishes, but they become very repetitious because with it, with a two, a one innings match, there's only a certain number of things that can happen, but a great many more can happen with a two innings match. But nonetheless, occasions like that are just absolutely unforgettable. They're extraordinary, and um, and and this is why 
although I'm like you, a great supporter of test cricket, one day cricket has its place. And we've got to remember that. And I think if only we can coexist peacefully and equally, uh, that is the, would be the ultimate. But at the moment, uh, it, it, the, the equality is not there because test cricket is being pushed to one side, sadly. I just love your book. And um, you're very kind. And we're going to, there's so much in it, I can't recommend it too highly. But we want to talk about something else now, some, which is also equally marvellous in its way, your, your new doc, the new documentary about your life. Um, we're going to give you, uh, Richard, how much, how many uh, deliveries should we send down at, at Henry? To well, I, to... I think uh, it's a three-part series, isn't it, Henry? So probably three three deliveries, yeah. Well, three three deliveries. I wonder if you were going to get Nad Carney to bowl them. <laughs> I wouldn't get any run for that. I'll bowl them, Henry, and you'll, you'll have a, <laughs> Which have a plenty, of, plenty of opportunity. Yeah. Two lines, whether to hit them for four or six. <laughs> That's <laughs> it, yeah. Hmm. No, well, what, I, what I've done was I thought the whole idea of this started in the summer. I was going to do a theatre tour this summer, and obviously because of COVID, I couldn't. And so I thought, well, if people can't come and see me, I'll go and see them, as it were. Or, you know, and so I decided we got, a, a, I think it was three cameras came down, and we spent about three days, two and a half days doing this, sitting in my lovely, I got a lovely 15th century cottage in Norfolk, and it's lovely, and we sat there with all the beams glowing at us, and I went through, and the, uh, I did three programmes, originally of an hour each, which was too long, and um, the first hour was how it all began in Norfolk, the village cricket ground, which was on the family, the family plot, so to speak. And uh, towards the end of the war, my father had some German prisoners of war working for him. And one year in 45, the farm was very far advanced. The weather was good. So he sent them to, re to remake a cricket ground in the old parkland. There had been one before, which was ploughed up to grow food, grow corn during the war. And, it, and, and that's where I sort of learned my cricket. And then going through to school, Sunningdale, Eton, and then Cambridge. And when I got kicked out, I got thrust into the city. And then... I you lost. You lost by uh, an innings, I think. Uh, the examiners defeated you by an innings. You said. Oh, oh, oh yeah. an innings and plenty. <laughs> I mean, our defeat at Brisbane in fifty-four-five uh, was a narrow victory compared to my defeat by the examiners. And um, I got thrust into the city, which I loathed. And you were making the sort of vague, sort of Woodhouse thing earlier, Peter. And um, and I started by having met Johnny Woodcock one evening. And I, a lot of curious chances. Two days later, having met him, I found myself at Gravesend uh, reporting um, on Kent v. Somerset for the Times. And that's where it all began. Then the second sort of R was um, really my journalistic career, then my, mostly my broadcasting career and all that, and how that's gone. Uh, with quite a number, I mean, in the first act, we've, we've taken the first thing, we, we, there were quite a lot of things. Uh, locally at Hofton that we filmed and we put in to sort of give some sort of substance and, and, and difference to it all. And then in the second bit, I sit down books and photographs and things like that we look at. And then the third R was what's happened since I gave up, you know, since I retired. Well, coming to live in Menorca, doing reality TV, the Marigold Hotel, going and working on cruise ships, lecturing, which I, we, I love doing and it's great fun. I do this with Kennard, which is lovely. 
and and all the other things and 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 it's worked actually quite well and one of the things we've ended with at at hofton on the, the sort of family pad uh in a big wood at the north end of it of the estate there my nephew has turned uh turned the wood into an absolutely wonderful uh children's adventure park and um it's called bewilderwood and it's become extremely famous and um, which has actually saved Hofton. And he's also uh, gone into partnership with Lord Chumley and, and done one at, um, up at Chumley Castle in Cheshire. So, um, you know, it, it's, it really, he's done brilliantly. And so we've gone through the whole sort of, uh, of my life and my life in Hofton, where I've got a house now, obviously, and where we filmed it. And so, you know, it, it's, all of, it's all of me and it shows, quite a lot more than just cricket you know it, it's um, mm -hmm. obviously there's broadcasting but there's also the life i've led and, and and the part of the world in which i've lived i think it is quite fun i think it's it's amusing there's some good stories and i hope people will be interested they uh will you can come across it by get it by going on to my uh twitter feed which is um at blowers h which um, tells you how to get into it, how you can buy this. The three programmes now have been edited down, each of them to half an hour, and they've been put together. So it's 90 minutes, which I don't think is too big a drain on anyone's concentration. And um, I hope it, a lot of people may think it's a good stocking filler. Who knows? But it, it, it's quite fun. And I hope, I hope, I don't know, think, Peter, I give you the chance, you'll have the chance to have a look at it. I'm certainly certainly going to have a look at it. I'm very interested in the section, any section on Menorca, Henry, because you're in Menorca now. I, I am indeed. And fun enough, yes. yesterday um, we had a farewell lunch to the founder and chairman of the Menorcan Cricket Club. There is an amazing cricket ground here, which was started in in 1990 when two people got together and uh, bought seven tiny little square walled fields with stone walls and took walls mm. down, uh, picked up by hand uh, with their friends about a million stones and have mm. turned it into a, a quite extraordinary piece of England. Uh, I mean, it's green, green grass. It's all desalinated water, quite expensive to keep up. But mm. they have something like 50 or 60 games a year with um, touring sides coming over from England, club sides. And, mm. and it goes incredibly well and, and, and is absolutely wonderful. Um, and as I say, we had a, a lovely uh, lunch yesterday for about 50 people, and which I sang for my supper. And, oh. uh, which, and, and it was, you know, fun. And, and it's lovely to be in an island where I can sort of keep, keep my uh, toe wet in the, in, the, in, in the waters of cricket. Henry, we got to bring this, uh, I, I mean, uh, this lovely conversation to an end. But first of all, Richard has got a, I know he does, and I think we need to hear it, a family connection with Menorca Cricket Club, don't you, Richard? You were telling well, me what... some of the land which you refer to, um, uh, where the Menorcan Cricket Club is, uh, now operates so brilliantly, used to belong to my mother. Really? She owned the big house next door. Well, it's now become a big house. It wasn't a big house then. Well, now, I can't remember who lives there. Um... A, um, a, the, the chap she sold it to, a, um, a, a German uh, translator or interpreter and his, and, his, and his wife live there now. And they remodeled the house a great deal, uh, Reinhardt and Elsie. Um, and um, the, I can't remember, I'm afraid I can't remember the second name, but that used to be my, that used to be my mother's land. 
Isn't that interesting? I shall tell the story, if I may. Please do. Yeah, I will. It's fascinating, because I I think these things are lovely. And as you say, they did did have to remove a million stones by hand to to create the field. They did. They did. We were talking about this yesterday, and Mm. Andrew said his knees had never recovered. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But they built a wonderful clubhouse. It's got a great bar. Uh, the the changing rooms are good, and you know every and the, the, the romantic yeah. sort of chairs yeah. and benches around the ground. There's a good scoreboard, mm-hmm. and they've got trees and uh, lots of trees. It's very green, and it, it is amazing. You come across it in, in the middle of almost a desert. It, it's extraordinary. Absolutely, I love these. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are these patches of of heaven out there around the world where some eccentric uh, mm-hmm. cricket fan has yeah. built. Ground. But now we've got to I, we've got to end it now. We we, must, we've got yes. to be on the. I'm probably going beyond our. Uh, I can sense the impatience from Bridget, our producer. Yes. Um, and so Henry, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you very much for coming on to this uh, our podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been great fun. I've enjoyed it hugely. I hope I. I I'm afraid I garbled away. I hope it makes sense. <laughs> It made a great deal of sense. Great deal. It brought back wonderful memories which we never had of cricket matches long ago. But it's some, it's some, isn't there something wonderful about just talking cricket? I mean, you, you know, when you, you, you've all got a, sight, a sort of similar sort of knowledge, you, you can delve back to old matches and situations and um, people you met in the stand. It's all terrific, I think. And thank you. Mm. Indeed. Um, once again, Henry, thank you for me. It's a lovely book. I'll just repeat the title. Ten to Win and the Last Man In. Thank you very much. Very appropriate title. Although we never found out the result of, in that, uh, of the match in that um, Henry Newport poem, did we? We never found out whether he did actually win the match. No, no chap. <laughs> we didn't. didn't <laughs> I mean, it's all very well smiting his shoulder, but did he tell him to, you know, cover the line of the ball? It Does might have been that's... a Carter's sort of a match. <laughs> Yeah, uh, could be. It's a wonderful book, Henry. Henry, it's been wonderful having you with us to talk about it. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Goodbye from me, Peter Oborn here in a in a warmer Wiltshire, much warmer as a result of this last conversation. Um, goodbye from me, Richard Heller. It's cloudy outside, but it's um, it's it's warm inside after that conversation. And goodbye from me, Henry Blofeld, and thank you. <laughs>